<laughs> I don't know if um, it's helpful to you to, to know where we're at on this, but um, if everything goes as planned, um, uh, next Sunday we'll be uh, concluding this study that we've been going through for several months now. Uh, we've basically given our attention completely to this entire period of the judges, and it's coming to a close here in 1 Samuel, uh, when, we, when Israel becomes united under one king. And so uh, probably next Sunday uh, we'll be finishing that, and then um, I think Alex is going to come and, and give us a message on Labor Day weekend. We, we picked one when nobody would be here. So. <laughs> So I'm just kidding. So Sunday, uh, on, I think it's September the 5th, Alex is going to preach. And so that's always exciting. He's uh, got a lot of energy and um, always got interesting, wonderful things to say. And I'm really looking forward to that. Where we're at right now in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, we remember that there was a high priest named Eli, and he had a couple of boys that turned into men. And they were, they were kind of rotten, living wrong, completely disrespecting their office and what they were doing, taking advantage in a number of ways, and the whole nation knew about it. You have to remember that everybody in Israel would come to the tabernacle. This is where these fellows were. So it made church dirty, and people who criticized church because Christians are hypocrites and all of that kind of stuff. This was like really bad like that. So uh, church was really dirty and hypocritical. Not everybody that was going there was, but these men were in charge. And so uh, Eli was old. And we remember that the Philistines were at war with Israel. There was a place called Aphek, A-P-H-E-K. This was a place where this battle occurred and Israel lost. They lost 4,000 people. It's a lot. Very bloody. Can you imagine? 4,000 men. And so they were dumbfounded, didn't know what to do. And so they, the elders of Israel thought, well, God wasn't with us, so we're going to take him with us this time. So they went and they got the ark. And Eli's two boys, they were instrumental in taking the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and to the battlefield. Israel lost. Heavy casualties. Um, Eli's two sons were killed and the Ark was captured by the Philistines. And so we remember last Sunday, we looked at that and how uh, the Philistines were judged by God and God brought them to a place to where they didn't want anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant, so they brought it back to Israel. We remember how those cows carried the Ark on that cart all of those miles through that road back to Beth Shemesh, which was a Levitical city. And it's Levites who should be touching the Ark, and of course they touch it with a pole, and it's a very restrictive on how to do it and who can actually do it. So it's a, it was a miracle what happened with those cows and how they didn't go to the right or left, they didn't return to their calves that were mooing and, and lowing for them, and uh, just a straight line all the way to Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. So the Ark of the Covenant was returned, but we remember at the end of the chapter that some men looked into the Ark and they were killed, a great number. 
And so the ark was moved from there to a place called Kiriath Jerim, which was not too far away. And there's a man named Abinadab, and apparently he had a house that was up on the hill. And uh, they took the ark to his home, and they consecrated his son, Eleazar, and he took care of the ark. And uh, from what we can tell, the ark stayed there for about a hundred years before it was ever moved. So this brings us to our reading this morning in chapter 7. And uh, what are we on there? Did I get way ahead? Wow. Look at that. Okay, here, this, this map here uh, basically shows us the travels of the ark. How it left, the, they took it from Shiloh to the battle at Aphek. And then it traveled through those three Philistine cities of Ashdod and Gath and Ekron. And then it was taken to Beth Shemesh and from there to Kiriath Jerim. So chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came for the ark of the Lord, and they took it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to take care of it. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and that are among you and dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him and then he will rescue from the hands of the Philistines so the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths and they only worshiped the Lord and Samuel said gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf and when they gathered at Mizpah they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence they fasted that day and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel began to lead the Israelites at Mizpah as their judge. So chapter 7 picks up after 20 years have passed. And something is happening, something unusual is happening because the whole house of Israel began to seek the Lord. And Samuel told them, okay, well, if you're really going to seek Him with all of your heart, then you need to put away your idols and only worship Him. And if you do that, then He will rescue you. So the Bible tells us that they did remove their idols and then Samuel gathered them at Mizpah to pray to God on their behalf to intercede for them. And they drew water and they poured it out on the, on the ground in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day and there they confessed that they had sinned against God. When Samuel could see that they were serious, he instructed them to remove their idols and to dedicate themselves to God. This is something that every Christian is supposed to do. No one can actually become a Christian unless they've done that at some point. But as we walk along, sometimes this has to occur again. Sometimes we get off center and we need to return. And so we gathered them at Mizpah. Mizpah was a special place. Uh, you'll remember when all of the tribes of Israel came to Mizpah to decide what they were going to do with the tribe of Benjamin. Saul will be anointed king there. 
And even after Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians many years into the future, Mizpah will become the capital because Jerusalem's been destroyed. So it's a special place for the nation. And it tells us that Samuel interceded for them in prayer. And we all know what that means, don't we? When someone intercedes on your behalf, someone goes and talks to the boss for you. When one of your kids is the one that's elected to go and talk to mom and dad about something. And Samuel was interceding for the nation because they'd been living really bad for quite a while, a long time. And it says here that they poured water out onto the ground before God and nobody seems to know why. It's not in the law. That's not something that's prescribed. And I don't know that they would have recognized that they were pouring out Jesus' blood that was being shed for them. I don't know if they could actually understand that they were doing that. But when you pour water onto the ground, you can't get it back. And that is the picture of repentance. It's when you're actually giving up something. You're turning your back on it. You're turning away from it. That's when you're really repenting. You know, there's a big difference between you tell God that you're sorry about something that you've done wrong, but you know that you're going to continue to do it. You're at least being honest with Him about what you're doing. But repentance is when you have a complete change of heart. And to me, this is what that picture is the best. We've all had the illustration of squeezing toothpaste out of a tube and you can't put it back in. You can try, but it's pretty messy. Repentance is when you're turning away from something. And when we repent, it doesn't turn God's hand where He's got to do something. It's not like it's the cause for God to be graceful and merciful to us, but it does create the condition. And not too many Sundays ago, I quoted 1 Timothy 2.25, and I talked about how repentance is a gift. It's not something that you just possess or mentally decide, I'm going to repent. It just doesn't happen like that. God actually has to intervene in your heart to cause it to happen, or it will never happen, ever, even in a believer's life. And it tells us that they fasted. It doesn't say they fasted 40 days and 40 nights or anything, but they did fast that day and they confessed their sin. It wasn't sin that they were confessing to each other. They were confessing their sins to God. And today we would, we would look at what happened and we would call that a, a revival. A good old-fashioned revival. But people can be very emotional and experience very emotional things and still not change. Revival services are very emotional. Concerts are very emotional. If you've ever got out of your comfort zone and went to a, a young teenage Christian concert, you're in for a real treat. But even then, those things do not actually always change us. 
This is why Samuel said that if you mean this, you have to mean it with all of your heart. That's because God is very jealous for our affection. He doesn't share it. If you're dating someone and they want to date other people too, how's that going to work? Nobody wants that. Nobody wants a to date someone who's dating other people or to be married to someone who's going to be with other people. Nobody wants that. That's ridiculous. God's the same way. And remember the very first commandment is that there's not supposed to be any other gods but Him. He's the only one. And in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, we remember the very famous passage that says that we're to love the Lord our God Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is a command. It's the first commandment. It is the command about how we are to view God and our relationship with Him. We're to love Him with all we have. Everything that we are, our entire being, is to love God and be committed to Him, to dedicate ourselves to Him and to worship only Him. That's the first commandment. And it's interesting because in the, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus expects the same thing for himself. And that's because Jesus is God. Listen to what he says. He says, this is Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 37. He says, the person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. My point is very simple. I'm going to say it a couple more times. It's very simple. And that is a revival, a renewal, is something that only God can do. We can't make it happen. We can't manufacture something like that. There are things that we can do in our Christian life that are disciplined. We, we discipline ourselves. Saturday night, we know we don't stay up too late because we're coming to church Sunday morning. That's a, that's a discipline. Um, we know that we're not supposed to talk a certain way, and so we can discipline our mouths and try to be more disciplined in, in the way we speak, the things that we... We watch the things that we laugh at. We discipline ourselves not to get caught up in the way the world looks at things and the way racial things and political things and all kinds of things, the way the world is trying to manipulate our minds and influence and mold us to their image. And so Christians discipline themselves. And when we sin, you know, Jesus said that if you've taken your shower, you're all clean. But as you walk along, your feet get dirty, so you're going to have to keep washing your feet. And that's that confession to where to remain in fellowship with God, you ask for forgiveness and you acknowledge that you've sinned to be restored into His fellowship. But that those special things, that's those special times, are gifts from God. They are a special work of the Holy Spirit. When my wife and I, our family moved here in 1995, we didn't realize it, but Cincinnati was in the middle of a statistics 
compilation. There was an analysis going on in Cincinnati that we didn't know about. It didn't take long to find out about it. But a great deal of attention was being given to police officers who were shooting and killing black people in Cincinnati. And every time it would happen, the circumstances didn't matter. It was a really big deal. It was in the news, it was in the paper, and activists here in town would really be vocal. Maybe you know who some of those people were and remember. It was like every single time. And you know what was even bad was that it seemed like it was always a, a white officer shooting a, a young black man. And obviously that's a tragedy. It's, it's absolutely horrible. Nobody would say anything dis different than that. But it was, in, it was implied that the cops were doing something wrong. That the cops were doing it because they were racist. And they just kept beating that drum, and they just kept beating that drum, and it was like they had a little rock, and they were knocking their rocks, sending those sparks into the tinder, trying to get that fire to start. And this went on and on until 15 black men have been murdered in five years. And they just couldn't get it to go. They really tried. But of course we remember that a police officer accidentally shot someone who was unarmed. It was an accident. It was an accident. And it started a riot. And this city burned. Buildings were looted, buildings were burned. People were being dragged out of their cars and beaten bloody, unconscious, laying in the middle of the street. There was blue jeans and cameras and everything imaginable laying all over the streets. Everything was on fire. This went on for three days. And it was spreading. Different neighborhoods in the city were starting to do this. All these, these the rioting behavior was spreading. Everything was in place. It was a perfect storm for that to occur. And it finally ignited. People were shooting the gun, guns at the police. A police officer was shot. And it was so out of control that all of a sudden the mayor said, all right, well, we're not going to do this anymore. There's a curfew. And we thought, the, everybody in the city thought that was silly. How can you go from looting stores and beating people and shooting at the police, and then the mayor says there's a curfew and it all stops? But it did. That's all he had to do. He instilled a curfew and it stopped. How is that? How does it just turn off like that? in an instant. How does something like that happen? Can you see God's hand in any of this? And I'll never forget it because there was all of these uh, activists, national activists that came into Cincinnati afterwards. And they kept trying to stir it up and light that fire all over again. But they just couldn't. They wouldn't light. All of the pieces have to be in place. When George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, 
The conditions were perfect in a number of other cities in Cincinnati, and it just ignited. It didn't hear. It was close, but it didn't hear because the conditions weren't right here. And Antifa came to Cincinnati, and they there was mysterious pallets of bricks just being dropped off on corners all over downtown. Nobody knows where they came from. And Antifa came, and they tried to get it all beaten up that drum again, but they just couldn't get it to happen. It takes a perfect storm. When Julie and I went out on our first date, we were stepping off of a curb, and our shoulders touched. And it was magic. We've all watched boys and girls try to win the affections of someone else, but to no avail. Guys who just try to will another woman to love them, let alone like them. It gets real spooky. Some of those guys can turn into some pretty spooky stalkers, can't they? But you've all seen it when somebody's got a huge crush on somebody and it's just not reciprocal. Everything has to be perfect. Everything has to be in place. If you've ever had a habit, you know, think about a wife that's done everything she can. She's completely invested, loving, caring, praying, trying to win back the affection of her spouse. And it just won't happen. My last example was a habit. Some of you have had a habit in your life, like me, that you just couldn't whoop. Maybe you quit every day. And then the next day you go right back to it. But you quit every day. Well, if you've ever beat a habit, you can take credit for it. You can say that it was your willpower and you did it. If you're like me, you know that it was God who got down on his knees and he took the shackles off of your ankles. In the same way, we are not able to manufacture a revival because it is a special work of the Holy Spirit. So what are we going to do? I wasn't going to read this, but I'm going to. Um, In the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, God writes a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. And the stars in Jesus' hands are the pastors, and the lampstands are the churches. And the images of Jesus walking around these lampstands and evaluating each one. And it's, it's hard reading. Very sobering assessments. This is to the, the church in Ephesus. 
It's in the beginning of chapter 2 of Revelation. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you. Listen to this. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And he goes on. So it's a very sober passage. It comes with a warning. And Jesus continues to evaluate every church, including ours. In one month, we're going to have a renewal service on a Sunday evening. It's a little over a month from now. And we've put it off into the future so that we can prepare for it. It will be a special time when we're going to ask God to intercede for us. And it's going to be a time where we can renew our commitments to Him. Because God wants us as Christians to be clean and available. You may be thinking to yourself, I am clean. Are you available? Because you cannot be clean if you're not available. Available means I'm ready to be used. What would you like for me to do? I'm willing to be embarrassed. I'm willing to be inconvenienced. I'm willing to make sacrifices. That's what it means to be available. That's what it means to pick up your cross. Fortunately, we don't have to pick up a cross cross in America right now. So our our difficulties are basically luxuries that other people in the world that are Christians can only dream of. But we have to be clean and available. So since we can't manufacture revival, there are some things that we can do as this service approaches. These are things I'm going to challenge myself and you, all of us, to do as we approach this, this, this special service that we're going to have. The first thing we want to do is we want to be in agreement with God. So if there's things in your life that are wrong, you want to be in agreement with Him about it. Attorneys, have, when they defend someone so often, it's got really nothing to do with the truth. It's, uh, it's just trying to get their client out of the trouble. And the, the commitment to truth is not really there. And this is actually what we do with God. Because we're constantly mitigating our own behaviors in our minds and in our hearts, excusing ourselves. And we can't do that. We have to be transparent with Him and we have to acknowledge if we're doing something wrong and we have to acknowledge 
if we've moved off of center. Remember what Jesus was saying. He said, look at how far you've fallen. Remember how far you have fallen. Now, obviously, there's a human role in revival and in repentance. But remember, if you're single and you would like to marry another Christian, then you've got to be living for God before God would bring that person into your life. It only makes sense, right? Why would God bring a really nice Christian man or woman into your life if you're living wrong? He would never do that. No parent would ever you know, do that. I would never entrust my daughter into the hands of some guy that I knew was living wrong. And I'm just a sinful human being. So it only goes to reason. God would never do the same thing with his kids. And so it has everything to do with, with, with being honest with God about yourself. Recognizing where you're at. And agreeing that there's a problem. And then this is where prayer comes in. We have to pray. We have to pray for God to, to change our hearts. So... Uh, if you're in a rut, you know, then, you know, you have to ask him to change it. If you are too comfortable, ask him to make you uncomfortable, to deliver you from what you're trapped in. Ask God for clarity. Ask him to identify for you clearly what it is that he would like for you to do. And then there's fasting. And nobody should know if you're fasting. That should be your secret. And there is no rule book on how to fast. There's nothing. It's just depriving yourself of something. Whatever it is, just deprive yourself. If you deprive yourself of food, it really gets your attention pretty quick. So I think that's one thing. But uh, this is something that we can do as we approach the service. And then we want to be sure that we're thankful. We remember to thank him for being patient with us, how good he is to us, how kind he is. And finally, then we can renew our commitments to Him. And maybe it will be real. Let's finish the chapter. Well, we remember that there was this incredible revival at Kiriam, at Mizpah. And all of Israel was there. And when the Philistines heard of that, they saw it as something much different. They saw a united nation that was going to rebel. And so when the Philistines heard this in verse 7, that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. And when the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And the Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, so that he will save us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. So while this is happening, Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines drew near to fight against Israel. And the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day, and he threw them into such confusion that they fled before Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place 
below Beth Carr. And afterwards, afterwards this incredible victory, miraculous victory, afterwards, Samuel took a stone and he set it upright between Mizpah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer, explaining, the Lord has helped us up to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. And the cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. In this case, that just means basically Canaanites. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he would judge Israel at all those locations. And then he would return to Ramah because his home was there. He judged Israel there, and he built an altar to the Lord there. What a contrast with chapter 4. In chapter 4, when they had lost 4,000 men, they decided that they would take the ark with them. And we talked about how the only times that ever occurred was when God specifically told them. God told Moses and God told Joshua, go get the ark, do this, do it this way. What a contrast to hear when the Philistines were marching and they all came to Samuel in desperate prayer. It's a very big difference. God threw them into confusion after Samuel was offering this burnt offering. And after they fell in retreat before Israel, Samuel set up a stone. He set it upright and he called it Ebenezer. That means the stone of help. He says, the Lord has helped us to this point. And that's basically saying who God has been and what God has done is who he will be and what he will continue to do. It is a statement that is intended to enrich our faith. This Ebenezer stone was a monument to help them remember, to help them stay centered. And to keep their gratitude fresh. We remember when uh, we talked about last Sunday when God parted the Jordan River at flood stage and he dried the ground and they walked through. And the Bible tells us that when they got to the other side, they, uh, each tribe would carry a large stone from the riverbed of the Jordan as they were crossing. And they used those 12 stones to create a little monument. And so everyone who would pass by would see those stones. And you can just imagine people would put their hands on those stones And we remember that when they had the ark, that um, the water didn't begin to part until they stepped in it. imagine grandchildren saying tell us again grandpa
All of us have things that are dear to us. I never thought I'd want this, but I've got my granddad's lunchbox. I'm not really the kind of person that likes a, a bunch of stuff and things. And it's really never done much for me. And uh, I sure like that lunchbox. What kind of faith monuments do you have? There are things that were your moms and your grandmas and your great grandma, those kind of things. What kind of things do you have that is a monument to your faith that reminds you? Do you have a stone like that? I have my dad's Bible that he preached from when I was a little boy. Reminds me of that. Reminds me of when I was a Christian when I was a little boy. It also reminds me when I was not a very good Christian later. I have my first Bible when I repented. What else do you have? I've got this wedding ring. I got my kids. And I got this body, what's left of it. Every day it reminds me of this journey. All of us need monuments of our faith. Chapter 7 ends by telling us that Samuel judged Israel all of his life. And next Sunday, if everything goes as planned, we're going to open chapter 8. Because chapter 8 starts after some time has passed since this revival. And once again, God is assessing his people. Let's pray.